Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm back this time as the one giving the sermon, not just welcoming you to the service. So uh, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we are in week two of a series called Christian Sexuality. And uh, as we approach this critical conversation during this, during this critical cultural moment uh, of our time, uh, you'll notice that we're beginning by building a framework for how we build uh, on this topic. And so you'll see last week, uh, Pastor Henry, go ahead and go back, go to that first slide. Last week we started with grace and truth, and it was really our posture to how do we bring grace and truth into this, into this conversation. So we started there, and this week we're in the, the authority of God and Scripture, and then next week we'll go to shame and forgiveness, and the, in the final week four, sex and marriage. And we'll pick this up for a second set in uh, kind of after Christmas into January and February. And uh, one thing that I, I want to um, just help you understand is that as we, first as we dive into this weekend's message, there isn't anything that's particularly uh, real specific about sex. We're talking more about the authority of God uh, and Scripture, but we're, we're spending a couple of weeks really preparing ourselves, our minds and our hearts for how do we approach really critical and sensitive topics that, like this in, in our day. Uh, our middle school and our high school students are also studying this on Wednesdays, and they're in here with us on the weekends. And if that makes you nervous, you're not the only one. It's okay. Uh, this makes all of us a little bit nervous because we're all trying to figure out how, how do we think Christianly about this and how do we, we carry this with us in, in, into real life with real people. Uh, and so if this is the first time that you've had some of these discussions with your student, it will probably be a little bit awkward, and that is okay. Uh, but we're saying that because we don't want you to feel like they shouldn't be in here with you or like you shouldn't send them to youth group because we have prepared for this and we're following a great curriculum that's going to help you to have the conversations that you have to have and that you need to have and then they need you to have. If we don't have these conversations in our families, the only place that the, those conversations are ha happening are on social media or Google or the school bus or the lunch table, nowhere that we really want the only conversation to be happening. And so it's an opportunity for us as, as individual families and as a church family to know how to think about this, to know how to talk about it, and, and how to approach it with grace and truth and, uh, and, then, and move into the world around us. So um, students, I want to challenge you and encourage you to, to lean into this on Wednesday nights with your leaders and with your small groups uh, and, and know that uh, a part of that is just is, is talking about it and growing closer to God. So this weekend, we are, are laying another footing as a foundation for how we approach these conversations. We're looking at the authority of God and Scripture. And understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery. And so in, when it's a mystery, we tend to not engage with it, and we, we aren't really quite sure how to apply it. Uh, normally here at Five Oaks, we take one passage, and we, we unpack it, and we apply it to our lives. Uh, this weekend, we're going to look at three different pieces of Scripture as a, as a way that we are going to explore the authority of God and Scripture. So we'll be in Genesis 1 and in James 4 and in Matthew 11. And so you can either take a Bible that's in the seat in front of you and put your fingers inside of it uh, where those spots are. Uh, you can just know that that's where we're going to head, and it's in your sermon application guide uh, as well. And, um, and I'll remind you when we're, when we're going to read from those, and I'll read them from here. So, uh, And so one of the problems that we have when it, with regard to this, to just the idea of authority, is that as humans, we don't really like being told what to do. 
In fact, many of us hear the word authority and it causes a bit of a limbic uh, response in, in us. And, and it, it, what that is, is is a subconscious, emotional, neurological response. I said it this way because it's really just a knee-jerk reaction, but this sounded a lot more formal. And, uh, and uh, so it's this response. Essentially what we're getting at is it's a response that happens without us really wanting anything to happen. It just sort of like, it just kind of reacts inside of us. And, and it happens when there's anything that we feel uncomfortable with or unsure of or in conflict with. And for some reason, for most of us, I think part of it is our human wiring. We just, we have this aversion to being told what to do or to feeling like there's, there's, a, there's an authority over us. Now this view and feeling of authority is compounded by the fact that we are living in an unprecedented time of divisiveness everywhere, on all sides, in all places, in our schools, in politics, in the church, in the city, state, country, and world, masks, vaccines, immigration, sexuality, rights, and freedom. Many days, it's literally like watching society tear itself apart at the seams, and we feel powerless to do anything about it. In fact, at any given moment, we also all feel divided about any one of the topics that are the topic of the day. How are we supposed to think about this? How are we supposed to live through this? And, and what are we supposed to do in light of our, of our Christian faith and, and our following of God? It's wild. And this is precisely why it's so important as Christ followers to remind ourselves of who God is and how we are to relate to his authority and to the authority of Scripture. You see, the divisive issues of our day are driving us to live conflicted with one view of authority or another. Most of the time, it leads towards an ideology or framework of thinking that doesn't start in its proper place. What that means is that we end up constructing our worldview from our own perspective rather than from something that is not only outside of us, but that is over us. And that something is a someone. And it's the God, it's God and his word. And when, so when we hear ourselves say, I don't want to be told what to do, we need to stop and think deeply about that statement as it relates to our posture towards God and his authority over us as his creation. Now, living with our hearts in that posture typically starts to come from feeling like there's an authority in our physical space, uh, in our world, that is, it is, it is, not, it is encroaching upon uh, what we would call our, our freedoms. And so when we start to live and react to that in the physical, our physical lives, we start to transfer that on to how we relate with God. And for some of us, uh, in the th thinking of authority might draw you back to pictures of authority that you've dealt with or, or, or lived with in your life. Um, when we think of God as our Heavenly Father, we think of God then as our authority. Any of you who had a father figure in your life who was not particularly a, 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 a nice person or a loving person, it's very difficult to cross that bridge from seeing God as our Father to someone who is loving and caring and kind. But that is exactly why we need to start here, is to invite ourselves in to recreate and understand who is God. And what are these false narratives that are sometimes teaching us or reminding us or making us think things about who God is that aren't true of who he is. So what if we could discover a better understanding of how we relate to God and his word as the authority in our lives? The authority of God and scripture in our lives is not an unnecessary restriction or irrelevant suggestion, but rather it's a path to the freedom and life that God has promised and designed for us. I'll say that again. It's a path to the freedom and life that God has promised and designed for us. So as we dive in, let's pray and invite God to be here with us. 
Heavenly Father, your word is truth and power. As we look to these scriptures, remind us that we are not just looking to letters or words on a page, not to a human message, but to your words given to us. Soften our hearts to receive and to understand your word. May it transform us and equip us to follow you and to bear fruit for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. God, we pray for our students and their leaders as they journey through this series. And we pray for parents and families and for us as a church family. We also pray for our high school students and their leaders as they're at Camp Getaway this weekend, learning about the story of God and and where they fit inside of it. We also pray for our Kids Hope Partnership with Woodbury Elementary, and we thank you for how it is changing lives. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Our teaching team was at a conference this last week, and the speaker, Nick Perrin, who is the president of Trinity International University, used a powerful picture and metaphor to help us begin to wrap our heads around how we cut through the divisiveness that we see in the culture around us. And he started with a picture of the Titanic. Now, this isn't the normal picture that we see of the Titanic. It's actually a picture of two of the smokestacks that were on the Titanic. And you also see some lifeboats over here uh, to the sides. To the side. Now, these two smokestacks can represent any divisive issue in our current cultural moment. Because rarely, when things are as divided as they are, is there a third way? And that's precisely what we're looking at today. And, but t- typically, it's either this or it's that. Now, when the Titanic sank, both of these smokestacks ended up on the bottom of the ocean. The only thing that didn't end up on the bottom of the ocean were the lifeboats. And with regard to authority, independence, and interdependence, there are two views of what this looks like, typically individualism and collectivism. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but, but that, th- th- those represent two distinct views of how we react to authority and who gets to decide what we do. Now, both of those are competing narratives that influence our posture towards authority. One says everyone must do this for the sake of everyone and that there is no individual. The other one says, I'm going to do what I want to do. Don't tell me what to do. Now, I know that neither of these sound remotely familiar right now in our current context, but just go with me here. Uh, We, all of us, find ourselves in one of those two smokestacks on any given issue at any given time. And when we find ourselves in one of those smokestacks, it's a, it's a sign that we are actually putting our trust in the wrong kingdom. And so today is not a message about what smokestack we should be in. The answer is that we shouldn't be in either one of them. The Bible doesn't see human life in that way. This is in contrast actually to both Eastern and Western thought. Eastern thought is a little bit more of a collective thought. Western is certainly much more individual. The Bible offers us a third way. The Bible sees human life as a relationship, as mutual relationship. And right from the beginning, God himself is in mutual relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Our pastoral resident, Danny, and I were discussing this as he clarified this idea even more uh, as we were reacting to what the speaker shared with us. That the problem that, that Nick presented is that people stand on top of the smokestacks thinking that being higher up will somehow save them from a sinking ship. But the truth is that the third way of the lifeboats down below, which look lower and lowly when you're standing on a smokestack, are the only way you're getting off the sinking ship alive. So how do we embrace the authority of God and Scripture in our lives so that we can embrace it as a lifeboat 
that rescues us from, from the smokestacks on a sinking ship? Well, first we start with a narrative that's rooted in who God is. And we start in all, of all places uh, right in the beginning, in Genesis 1. So you can turn to Genesis 1, and we'll start there actually with Genesis 1.1. And it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. It all starts with a God who creates. And in the creation, God is bringing order to chaos. That before God begins to create, there really wasn't order to anything. And as he's, as he's laying out the initial uh, form, formation of the earth, uh, he's, he's putting things where he intends for them to be, and it brings order. The earth was formless, but he brings light and darkness. There's water and there's land. And God will go on then to create humans in his image. And Jackie Hill Perry says this about, about what this means for us. If God is creator and I am created, I am automatically subject to him. So that's why we're starting here. Is that this all starts with, well, well, if we were created and God is the creator, then we are subject to him. In fact, the, the, the word authority comes from author which is to, the, we know what an author is. An author writes a story, is the, is the narrator over, over a narrative and, and knows what the different character, what roles they play and where things go. They design the story. So God designed the world. He designed you and I. And because of that, we are subject to him. Now, there's a lot of false narratives that we can start to get into our heads about who God is and what this means. And this is one of the ways that we begin to, to speak those false narratives into their proper place, which is out of our heads and a thousand miles away. We need to adopt the true narrative of who God is, and this helps us to do this, that God created us. He is our creator. But it's not too much further into the opening pages of this story when the first two humans decide that they don't think that they want to be subject to God any longer. Adam and Eve buy into a lie, and they decide to go their own way. They listen to the serpent, Whispering lies, or in other words, false narratives, to the doubt that's already in their hearts about God. They have a question about this tree that they're not supposed to touch and this, this food that they're not supposed to eat. And they think that they'll experience life if they decide it on their own. And though there's, there's something that God's withholding from them. And they're believing this because the serpent is telling them that this is so. But the serpent isn't just convincing them. He's 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 telling them something that they're already wondering about in our hearts. And why do we know this? Because we wonder the same thing. We wonder if this life with God is really all there is. And what if there's something else beyond the boundaries that have been laid for us? 
they become convinced that they can decide what's best for them and that they can determine for themselves the difference between good and evil. In other words, they follow their hearts. And as much as we love the saying, follow your heart, uh, we also know that following our hearts is, is, is not always the, the best practice. And with regard to Adam and Eve, their hearts are deceived. They believe a lie, and it breaks everything. When we decide to do what we think is best for us, we invite chaos into our lives and into the world around us. Just like Adam and Eve, we decide for ourselves and, and believe that we know what's best. Putting ourselves under the authority of God, instead, opens the door to the reality that, as Lori Craig says, it's possible that there is someone who exists who knows more than me. I'm going to write this on my mirror, I think. It's possible, it's possible that there is someone who exists who knows more than me. Now, as we continue through our time together this afternoon, we're going to get to a spot where we're going to talk about freedom and living lightly and freely. And there is something about this quote and something about what we're going to see in Scripture that while on the surface doesn't look like it's freedom or autonomy, that actually feels really a lot like that. This is very relieving to me. And it ought to remind all of us that you don't have to have this all figured out. And when we convince ourselves that we have to have it all figured out, that is the beginning to starting to think that, like, well, maybe there's some things that I need to decide for myself. And there's some things that, yeah, the Bible is nice and it's good and it tells me some things and tells me how God works. And, but there are some other things that I'm not sure the Bible really speaks to. And I, I think it's okay for me to speak to that. The idea that there's someone, and it's in this case God, who knows more than me, ought to be deeply relieving to all of us. We used to take a lot of students on uh, backpacking trips. I was on staff with Young Life, a, a ministry, for a long, long time. And uh, we would take students, one of the best discipleship outings we ever did was we'd take them to, to the mountains of Colorado, and we would hike for a week. And uh, this is actually our group heading into, into the mountains one year. And uh, this particular year was going to be a year marked with not only an incredible peak climb of a 14,000-foot peak, but along the way, we would encounter more lightning and more hail and more rain than anybody ever wants to experience when they're completely exposed to the elements. On one particular day, we were sitting eating lunch, and I saw the guys look at each other, and then suddenly we packed up lunch a little more quickly than we normally do. Now, if you know anything about the mountains, storms move a lot more quickly uh, when you're at the mountain elevation than when we're here in the flatlands. And, uh, and so we start really moving up this ridge, and we had to get up and over this ridge to where our campsite was going to be. And so we're walking along, and, and it gets dark really quick. And then it starts to kind of like, you can hear just the lightning kind of roll in. And it's just that, it's that sound that kind of makes you cringe because it just does that kind of like, that crackling sound over your head. Except that we're, maybe we're not a lot closer, but we're enough closer that it feels like it's right there. And, uh, and a couple of the students are having a hard time breathing because we're, you know, not, we're not from there. And so they're having a hard time with the extra pace that we have put on. And at one point, one of the guys pulls me aside and he says, John. Lightning is the number one killer in Colorado, and this is why. This is life and death. We have to get them up and over this ridge and down into the valley below, or we're in grave danger. And I'm like, okay. 
So he says, I want you to take all the students with Joel, who's our other guide, and get them up and over. I have to stay with, these, with the other two students and, and help them. These were the students that were having a hard time breathing. So we start literally running up the mountain, and it starts to rain. And then it starts to hail. Not just like little nice hail, but like big hail, you know. And it's bouncing off of our packs and off of our heads. And, and we get up over the top of the ridge, and we run down into the valley. And we get down into this thicket of trees where we're safe. And the other students come shortly behind us. And one of the guides says, "Woo! that's how you know you're living. And I looked at him. I was not a lot older than him, but enough older that I, thought, I looked at him and said, what, are you 19? You know, and what I, 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 was, I was married. I had a, a wife at home who was pregnant with our first child. And I was like, this isn't a game. This is life and death. We can't be messing around up here. And then it happens again, only this time in the middle of the night. And so we're in our tents, and it's just a fly, so there's no floor to it. And we're sleeping, and it starts to thunder and, and rain. And now previously that night, I had talked with one of the guides about wildlife in the mountains, and I was like, hey, do you guys ever worry about mountain lions and stuff? I was just curious, you know. And uh, he, they're like, no, we don't. Actually, a bull moose is more dangerous than a mountain lion. A group our size, a mountain lion's probably not going to mess with us. I didn't really like the word probably, but he said a bull moose would be more dangerous than, than a mountain lion. And so... In the middle of the night, this thunderstorm lets loose, and, uh, and it's raining so hard that there's literally two inches of water rushing underneath the flies. Our stuff is starting to float away, and the guides come in. We're awake at this point. The guides rush into our, into our camp, and they're into our tent, and they say, everyone get into lightning position. And I'm thinking to myself, there's a position for lightning? I don't want to be in a place where I have to have a certain position for lightning. And lightning position, for those of you who don't know, is crouched with your arms around your knees where the only thing between you and the ground is the rubber on the bottom of your boots. Because it is lightning like crazy. And I'm thinking to myself, well, there's water rushing over my boots. I don't think this is going to work. So I remembered that we had seen this hunting cabin that was right connected to, to, the, to the last campsite that we were in. And so we're screaming at each other in the tent because it's so loud we can't hear each other. And I, we, we venture to the, to the hunting cabin to seek shelter. And as the storm subsided and went away, I ventured out to my, to my pack and the guys were there. All the students were in the, in the cabin. And before I know it, there's a rock slide on the other side of the river from us that lets loose. But it is pitch black. So I can't see anything. And so I'm not thinking rock slide. The only thing I'm thinking is angry bull moose coming out of the river. And so I go dashing across the campsite. I trip on this huge steel fire pit, take a gouge out of my shin. I get over to the guide, and they're kind of chuckling like, John, why are you so out of breath? What, what's the matter? And I, was like, and I said, what, what was that? And they said, that was a rock slide. What did you think it was? I was like, I thought it was a moose. And... And so they, they had a good laugh at that. And uh, here we are the next day. This is me and, and three, of our, three of the other campers. See, look at how tough we look. Me and my cute little Band-Aid on my shin. And, uh, and so the reality was, as funny and as comical and as, as great of a story as it is now, I was literally, I was, I was pretty scared. And it's because I had no control over anything in the situation. I had no ability to survive out there on my own. And if I had been out there by myself, I certainly would have probably starved or would have gotten lost or struck by lightning or attacked by an angry bull moose or a mountain lion. Uh, but we didn't because we had guides. And the guides who were with us were trained and knew the trail that we were on like the back of their hands. And they had maps and they had a radio in case something not like an AM-FM radio, like a, like a walkie-talkie that could 
call for help if something terrible happened. We need the same thing. We need a guide. We need a shepherd that's going to guide us through this life. And we have a God who is a good shepherd who not only created us and designed us, but has promised to be with us. It's going to be hard, and we are going to struggle. But the God who created us promises to be with us. And that's what these next two points underscore for us. Next, we embrace the instruction of God in Scripture. And we find that in James 4. So you can turn to James 4. And in James 4, verses 6 through 8, James is is talking about uh, what it means to submit ourselves to God and what it means to to follow God and to be faithful and obedient to him. So it starts in verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Knowing God's character and trusting God's purpose. And so when we think about the creation, we think about the promises that God's giving us and the fact that by the very nature of him being created, that God's character is that he is a creator. He is a protector. Knowing God's character and trusting God's purpose helps us to submit ourselves to him and to his word. God's purpose is to sanctify and strengthen us. Another word for sanctify is to purify or to remove anything that, that doesn't belong. He wants to make us better. He wants to make us flourish. That's what this is all about. God wants his creation to flourish. This is freedom. This is the freedom in committing and submitting to God. It's like charting a course or following a path. It's not restrictive, but it does have boundaries, and it does have a direction. If you're on a path in the mountains, and you wander off the path, you're going to get lost. There's a path there for a reason. It's a means by which we live in sync with how we were created. We, we follow God, and we, we try to understand how is God leading us. And when James talks about, actually in the ESV translation, he uses the word perfect. And by perfect, he's not speaking to be flawless. He's, speak, he's, he's talking about harmony, that we would be in harmony, with, that our physical lives would be in harmony with our, with our spiritual lives. And that is our problem, that there is a collision between our spiritual life and our human nature. There's a collision between our spiritual life and our human nature. We're in a smokestack rather than in the lifeboat. We're trying to figure out how and where we want to live and how we want to to decide to do things on our own. Now, there's a couple of practical points here for for students and for parents and for all of us as as followers of Christ that that for students, the the, the teenage years are, are years that are marked with conflict. They are conflicted by nature. Because they're learning new things and they're discovering new things and there's pressure and approval and all these other voices that are speaking into that. Parents, this is not about raising students and kids who don't struggle but who struggle well. And part of how we lean into a series like this is that we are equipping ourselves as individuals and as families and as a, as a church family so that we can journey through this together. We can struggle with, through this together. And for all of us, there's a question that gets complicated the older we get. And the question is, what kind of person do I want to be? 
What kind of person am I becoming? What kind of person am I? And what are the sources of authority in my life that are influencing that? There's a question in your sermon application guide this week that asks that. What are the authorities and influences in your life? Now, that might seem like a question that you want to pass by, but I want to challenge you to sit in that question because all of us, as by the very nature of the fact that we are human beings living in the world that we live in, we all have authorities and influences around us and over us that are not drawing us in the same place that God's word is drawing us. The purpose of God's word is to draw us closer to him and to his likeness through understanding of his scripture and relationship with him. We begin to see the discrepancy between the life that God is holding out and the life that we are living. It means that we have to acknowledge that we are going to do things God's way. So listen to what James says uh, as as he's talking about submitting to God. That James says in verse 6, God's opposition is his grace. God's opposition to, to our human nature is his grace. And then James implores us to submit ourselves, therefore, to God. He talks about, uh, James describes us as double-minded. You know, this would be in reference, you know, not in reference to, but like the smokestacks would play into that. That's exactly the reference that he's saying, that, that you are in a smokestack. Or in other words, you have one foot on a boat and one foot on the dock. And if you don't decide which one you're going to stand on, you're going to be in the water. We're double-minded. We think two different ways about things. And the work of Scripture and the work of God is bringing us back into harmony with ourselves and with our Creator. One of the obstacles we have from time to time is making time to sit and read and reflect on Scripture. And so if that's the season that you're in, which, by the way, that is a normal season. That is a season that all of us journey through from time to time. If you're in that season... Spend some time being honest about why is, it, why is it hard for me to be in God's word? What is it that's going on in my life? Or is it something about what I'm reading? Is it something that I'm going through? Something else? Is it time? What's, what's happening? And second, recognize that in our social media addicted world, we are oftentimes looking for God's scripture to be like a quick devotional post. Now, I'm not saying that devotional posts or quick scripture references on Instagram are bad. They're not. They're good. We put them out there as a church so that you can read and reflect and think about them throughout the day. But when, when, when we enter into God's scripture, expecting for it to quickly jump off the page like it will jump off the, the screen of our phone, we aren't giving enough breath to the Spirit. We aren't spending enough time patiently. Maybe it's wrestling with something that the Bible is saying. Maybe it's just joining our small group and reflecting on a passage. And third... We are going to read things in the scripture that oppose certain types of thinking and certain behaviors in our lives. God's opposition to these things is his grace. Now, another false narrative is that God doesn't want us to be happy. That's not true. God very much wants us to be happy and to be fulfilled. The problem is that we have an incorrect view of what happiness is. We want to define what that looks like, and we define it incorrectly, moment to moment, based on what it is that we think that we want or that we need. And if we go back to the story of Adam and Eve, go back to where it started in in Genesis. After Adam and Eve go their own way, God banishes them from the garden to rescue them from an eternity of broken paradise. 
having to leave the garden is both a natural and a spiritual consequence to the decision that they made to disobey God. But God isn't done. He's just getting started. In fact, that's part of what's happening is that the entire arc of Scripture is, is beginning right in that moment. And it's important to realize that what is happening is the beginning of this epic love story of God pursuing his creation and bringing them back to himself. Not just giving them a list of things as to how they are going to make it back to him or the, the behaviors that they have to prove, the way they have to kind of better themselves. This isn't something that he is expecting them to do on their own. God is creating a much different narrative here. Our setbacks, our struggle, our sin are all a part of this same arc. That God is coming after us. He's bringing us back into the family of God. And in this, in this all-cohesive narrative in Scripture, it's all pointing to Jesus as the means by which God's creation is going to come back to him, to be in right relationship with him. And not only does he accomplish this reconciliation, but, but he is with us. God is not a lofty king. Another narrative here. God is not a lofty king who sits on a throne a great distance from his people. He is right in it with us. God sends his son to earth to live as a human. And we see what God is like based on what's revealed in the scripture about the life of Christ and the way he acted, the way he loved, the way he lived. So scripture not only instructs us about God's design for our lives, it shows us how we experience it in real life. And that brings us to, our, to the, third, the third way that we embrace the authority of God in scripture is by recognizing that we have a God who indwells. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11 for this one. And in Matthew 11, verse 28 is where we're turning. Jesus is, is talking about what life with him looks like. This is an invitation from the God of the universe who created you and me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the message translation of this verse, Eugene Peterson talks about, um, he talks about, are you burned out on religion? And I would describe religion as rote or empty spiritual practices that don't actually lead us back to God or lead us in life with God. They're things that are just, that we do that, that are just empty. Jesus is inviting us to something that's way beyond an empty practice. He's inviting us to relationship. He's inviting us to be yoked with him, essentially to be in a lifeboat. In our lives in this way, Jesus brings order to the chaos. Jesus brings order to the chaos that we create in our lives. Jesus proves his goodness and love for us by giving up his life. Then by God's great grace and mercy, he invites us to have his spirit dwell within us. Jesus proves his goodness and love for us. Remember, Jesus, as the, as the physical expression of who God is, proves his goodness and love for us by giving up his life. Then by God's great grace and mercy, he invites us to have his spirit dwell within us. Now, this word picture of a yoke 
is really interesting because what Jesus is describing is anything other than what a yoke looks like. And, you know, if you don't know what a yoke is, you can Google it. Uh, and, but it's essentially a big piece of wood that's strapped across two oxen, and it keeps them together. So when they pull something through a field together, they're pulling with, with, with one force rather than doing it on their own. And so Jesus is combining this, this word picture of something that really sounds somewhat restrictive and hard with something that's light and, and, and free. Freely is the word that, that they use. And so uh, taking on the yoke of Jesus is an invitation to live freely and lightly in step with our Creator. And so there's this interesting word picture that's happening here because Jesus is describing something that anybody listening to this would have been like, I, I don't know, I've seen... I've seen what you're talking about, Jesus, and that, that doesn't really look light and free. So what is happening here? Jesus is saying, be yoked with me. Come and walk with me. Experience the unforced rhythms of grace is the way that the message translation describes it. So it is work, and there are boundaries, and, and, and sometimes things that might feel confining, but we can't do whatever we want to do and follow God. In fact, that doesn't work in any relationship. Try that in a friendship or a marriage, and, it, and not great things happen. It comes apart. And so Jesus is saying that, yes, there is a yoke, and we're, we're together on this, but it's free, and it's light, and you'll experience the life that I have intended for you. Obedience to God's authority will ultimately lead to our happiness, to our fulfillment, and to our peace. And now, saying that phrase sounds nice, and it sounds cliche a little bit. But the goal of Scripture and the goal of a God who wants to relate to us is to actually help us experience this. Not, not because we just want to experience happiness as its only end. But God is saying that we will experience happiness and fulfillment together. We get to be with God. And it's a path of obedience that we don't walk alone. Nick Perrin, the speaker I was talking about earlier, uh, ha- says this, that who we are is a product of our faith and time spent in relationship to him. Who we are is a product of our faith and time spent in relationship to him. A God who creates. A God who instructs. Who instructs through his scripture who instructs through his son, who he sent to to earth. And then a God who empowers us through his Holy Spirit. That we don't go about this on our own. We go about this empowered by the God who created us. And as we enter into a time of celebrating communion, um, you can take the communion pack that you got when you came in and make sure you peel off the top little cellophane wrapper first. As we experience communion, this is, what we, this is what we celebrate. We celebrate that there's a God that created us. And he designed us specifically to be in harmony with him and in harmony with, with ourselves as we live in the way that he designed us to live. And yet we choose our own way and we create chaos in our lives and there's chaos in our world. But God doesn't stop there. He sends Jesus. And Jesus comes and shows us in person what God is like. And then Jesus goes to the cross and dies. And then he comes back to life and he conquers the death that is going to keep us from God. And not only that, but then he says, we are invited 
to put the power of the Holy Spirit, to receive the power of the Holy Spirit as the means by which we go about following him. And so this week, as, as we go and as we experience communion today, we, 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 we experience God's power. That's what we celebrate. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, take this and eat and remember, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and in the circle of friends, he said, drink this. This is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you created us. You designed us. And although there is chaos in our lives at times and there are things that we struggle with, you're not surprised by any of it. You're not surprised by any of of what's happening in our world and help us to cling to that as our hope help us to remember that we are not alone that you are with us in this and that as we embrace you as our authority and we embrace your word that that reminds us who you are and what you've called us to that you also have sent your son and you rose him from the dead and you have given us the opportunity to live with him day in and day out as the means by which we accomplish the mission you've set before us. We worship you for that, and we love you, and we thank you for your love.